live from New York. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Jobs pain persists. Over 45 million Americans claiming benefits since March. Bolton's bombshells. President Trump's former national security advisor explains why he thinks the president is unfit for office and continuing the climate comeback. The $3 trillion recovery plan for a green COVID recovery. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. To recover. Again, to our first movers around the globe. Great to be with you, and we're back to watching both the science and the stimulus around the world in today's show, monitoring the global response to COVID 19. China, India, and the UK have pledged, pledged fresh support in the last 24 hours. Fed Chair Jay Powell pushing U.S. Congress once again for more action, saying recovery will take years. I think that concern emphasized this morning by the data is a further one and a half million Americans filed for jobless benefits last week. The total, as I mentioned, since mid-March, now standing at more than 45 million workers. That's one in three American workers. Perhaps more worrying in this number for me, the number of people that are actually collecting benefits versus just asking remains stubbornly above that 20 million mark. The hope with this that, was that we would see this um, take a more sizable fall as jobs come back. It's tough to gauge at this stage whether we're now seeing a second wave of redundancies as the COVID reality catches up. What we do know is that cases are rising in almost two dozen U.S. states. Take a look at the Dow and the S&P this morning. Set for a weak open. Tech, though, holding up here at a flattish open there. Stocks gave back some gains yesterday, though. The Nasdaq remains up 10% year-to-date. Wow. The Asia session was pretty mixed. I can give you a sense of that. The most important takeaway from there, good news, it seems, from China on the recent outbreak. A high-ranking health official there says that the recent COVID-19 outbreak is under control following recent soft lockdown measures. And the nation's central bank governor assured investors that he will keep the liquidity flowing in the months ahead to help support the economy, the science and the stimulus. Sounds like just about every other central bank governor we know, and that's the economic reality we face around the world. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, I want to hone in not only on the fact that we are continuing to see more than a million workers registering for first-time benefits, but the point that I made about this, the stubbornness that we're not seeing the number of people actually getting benefits coming down in any way really at all. Yeah, that continuing claims number was really disappointing to me because when we saw in the May jobs report that two and a half million jobs were created, you would hope that the the overall number of people collecting a check, not just the first time claims, but the overall number of people would start to come down. And it came down by like 62,000, but still holding there above 20 million. Stubborn is exactly the right word to use. You're absolutely uh, correct here. So that's a disappointment. What I see here is I just see a grind of layoffs, Uh, a million and a half again. Yes, these numbers are coming down, but they're coming down from such a high level. Yes, the trend is the way you want to go. But when you have a trend that is is improving from utterly catastrophic, it's hard to feel like the green shoots are there overall in the economy. What we also know here, we know that some of these states have really high percentages of their labor market 
that have filed for unemployment benefits, Georgia and Kentucky among them. And in Kentucky in particular, I mean, you have people who, you know, went to the state house to protest, to demand that they get their checks processed because there is still such a backlog of layoffs. And every heard of or laying people off or extending furloughs, you know, that's that's just worrisome here. July 1st will be the fourth uh, rent, fourth month that rent will be due on the first of the month. And, and that just shows you kind of the hardship, I think, for American families. Yeah, I mean, this is such a great point as well, um, Christine. You know, for me, when I look at the numbers here and I look at the extent of the challenge, even with two and a half million jobs coming back, even with that bumper retail sales number that we saw, and there seemed to be a lot of optimism about that, the scale of the challenge going forward and the fact that many of the supportive measures, the bump up in unemployment benefits, they run out come the end of July, the beginning of August, if Congress doesn't do something. There's just no room for complacency, even if we see big bounce backs in the numbers. I can't, I've lost my audio, Julia, but when I'm reading your lips, I think what we're talking about is how we can continue to support small businesses and how to continue to support families, whether we're going to need another round of stimulus and what it will look like and how central, the central bank chief has been uh, talking about uh, what, will be, uh, what will be necessary. I think when we saw those good retail sales numbers, relatively good retail sales numbers earlier this week, you know, that was the stimulus checks, that was enhanced unemployment benefits, that was government support of people who've been dislocated by this crisis. Uh, where we go from here, what the next level of stimulus looks like, anybody's guess. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. And I just want to apologize to our viewers if they had trouble hearing you there. We had uh, a few techie issues, I believe. So um, all important information. Thank you for that. Right, the U.S. Justice Department wants to stop the publication of a new tell-all book by President Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton. Among the claims inside, Bolton accuses the president of asking China to help him win re-election. In response, the president says Bolton's book contains secrets. But he broke the law. Very simple. I mean, uh, as much as it's going to be broken, this is highly classified. That's the highest stage. It's highly classified information. And he did not have approval. That's come out now very loud and very strong. John Harwood joins us now from Washington. John, if it's highly classified, does that mean it's true? Because it surely can't be lies if it's uh, the alternative. The key for me, though, ultimately is, is there anything that we think that's in this book that might have changed minds, particularly for Senate Republicans in the impeachment inquiry? Because surely this is what it comes down to. You know, I'm not sure it would have changed minds in the impeachment inquiry. And you were right to note that in that clip you just played from President Trump, uh, at no point in that uh, in that uh, uh, response did he say the things were untrue. He said they were classified, uh, which in the context of President Trump means they're embarrassing. Uh, there are a couple of specific things of note. Uh, he, uh, with respect to impeachment uh, over the uh, interactions with Ukraine, the uh, John Bolton said Democrats were too narrow, that there were other instances of the same. And he said, in fact, it was obstruction of justice as a way of life for the administration. He also uh, recounted an episode where the president interacted at a G20 meeting with President Xi Jinping of China uh, and was discussing, uh, President Xi was explaining he was building concentration camps for the uh, Uyghurs, who are Muslim, uh, to uh, uh, confine them. And the president said that's exactly the right thing to do. 
Um, but I think we ought to step back and, and recognize that this is not about uh, a uh, disagreement, a feud, uh, the dust that will get kicked up about specific episodes. In 2016, when Donald Trump was running for office, uh, Republicans who ran against him, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, said he is utterly amoral. He's a narcissist. He's a pathological liar. He's a con artist. Hillary Clinton said he's unfit for office. That was in a campaign, and people dismissed that as campaign rhetoric. Now we have, with John Bolton, with Jim Mattis, with John Kelly, who was the White House chief of staff, the people closest to the president working in the most senior jobs in his administration saying now, you know what, all that stuff was true. He is amoral. He is dishonest. He is focused exclusively on himself rather than the United States. He is unfit for office. And what, when you talk about changing minds, I think what's happening now with the American people, when you see his approval ratings go down, when you see him fall further behind Joe Biden, is that people are connecting those characteristics of the president, which have been pretty obvious throughout his term, to real tangible consequences in their lives. The economic wreckage that you talked about with uh, Christine Romans, 45 million people filing for unemployment benefits, the public health threat uh, of the coronavirus pandemic, and now the turmoil that is tearing America apart uh, over race relations, all things that the president has either ignored or exacerbated with his conduct. And uh, I think that's where the minds are getting changed now that people look ahead to the election and see, do we really want four more years of this? Yeah, it's an interesting question, though, I have to say. Those that hate Donald Trump have done so some, from the beginning. Those that love him will love him, it feels, no matter what. It's the people in the middle here that, that truly matter. And to your point, many of them right now are suffering. John Harwood, thank you so much for that. Now, there haven't been many positives as a result of this pandemic, but a healthier environment is one of them, from flamingos flopping, flocking to a lockdown Mumbai to jellyfish swimming in Venice's unusually clean canals. The earth has taken a breather thanks to lower levels of pollution and a drop in human activity, while the International Energy Agency says it wants to continue that trend. It's announced what it calls a green recovery plan worth $3 trillion. John Devteris is the anchor of CNN's Global Energy Challenge, and he joins us now. John, talk me through this, because this should be a huge opportunity if we want to reinforce economic recovery, bring back jobs. There should be good ways to do that and do it more cleanly in terms of energy. And that's part of this plan. I think it's at the core of the plan, uh, Julia, because many of the economies, as you know, and investment has been retrenching as a result. So the IEA, led by Fatih Birol, saying, let's seize the opportunity. You talked about it in your leading, and we've had a historic drop in oil demand, and emissions are dropping. So this has been big progress, but they're one-offs. They're not going to solve uh, the challenge to 2050 and the Paris climate change targets right now. Uh, at the same time, they're, they're saying this is a historic window to redrop the roadmap here. You can redraw what we're going to be doing in the energy sector uh, overall. Uh, it could preserve, and we're not talking about long-term, Julia, between 2021 and 2023, uh, up to 3 million jobs of the 40 million uh, in the overall sector right now. Uh, additionally, you want to try to redirect to the transition. Uh, oil and gas companies here where they have prices hovering in the oil sector between 40 to $50 a barrel. That's not going to drive huge demand here, but where's the investment company? And the big concern is, and the earmarking for 2020 is that demand is dropping around 9, 10%, but we have investment dropping 20%. And we're talking about serious dollars here 
uh, up to $400 billion this year. So this is that chance. And by the way, it's the Europeans leading the role here. They have already a green fund, as you know. They're starting off with a trillion dollars, and the plan is to invest $300 billion each year through 2030. So this is a, a chance to get the whole globe, Asia and the United States, into that equation. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? The hope is that the people follow through on this. I have to say I'm a bit skeptical. John Defterius, thank you so much for that update there. Now, shares of the Chinese e-commerce giant JD.com made their debut on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange Thursday. They closed up 3.5%. The company raised almost $4 billion in the secondary listing, which comes amid rising tensions between the United States and China. Cherise Pham joins us now and has been looking at this. It's been called a homecoming listing. Cherise, obviously they've already got a listing on the Nasdaq, but the fear here with perhaps forced delistings in the future given tensions making, I think, a lot of these Chinese companies eyeing alternatives. Yeah, absolutely. JD is part of a wave of Chinese companies that have sought secondary listings here in Hong Kong. JD's listing today is the biggest debut in Hong Kong, the biggest IPO, if you will, in Hong Kong so far this year. So it's a big homecoming for the Hong Kong Stock Exchange as well. And I talked to the vice president of JD Retail. We talked about not only the rising U.S.-China tensions, but also the importance of this date, June 18th, is a big day for JD.com. It's an annual sales blitz they have. And this year, it is being closely watched just to see how Chinese consumers are spending on the back end of this pandemic. This June 18 uh, is very special. Uh, just as you mentioned that uh, we just got recovery from the virus. So that this moment is, uh, is pretty important. And this is the first national wild sales event during the recovery of the virus. Uh, but we do see a very uh, good, strong momentum. There is a pretty good bump uh, during this period of revenge consumption. And we saw all the categories, for example, electronic categories, fresh, medical, 3C, beauties, are all just rebound very well. What were the lessons that you learned from this crisis? This was one of the biggest crises that any of us have faced in our generation. And I'm sure it was the same for your company as well. During this uh, epidemic, uh, this is a double-edged sword, right? For some of the category, uh, it really, uh, this, during the pandemic period, it really help us to grow. But for some of the category that get severe impact, for example, home appliance and those uh, big ticket items. You also are at risk, of course, of the U.S.-China relationship deteriorating further. What is JD doing to sort of protect its business from the risk of rising tensions between Beijing and Washington? Uh, I think we are a, just a company, a, a business, right? So, uh, so we, I cannot comment more on the political side, but for, for, for us, we do hope that could, there could be a very open and, uh, and the equal environment, global environment, and to, to, for us to work with the other parties, no matter it's domestic, domestic or overseas. Uh, so being able to do business overseas and domestically, very important for JD. So far, they're saying for the June 18th sales event, they have pulled in 239 billion yuan, Chinese yuan. That is about 33.8 billion U.S. dollars. And that's only as of 2 p.m. today. So there was still 10 hours left in the sales blitz, Julia. 
Yes, and I heard plenty of investment interest from overseas investors, even in the United States too. So, uh, yes, not deterred by the broader political tensions, it seems. In any case, Sharif Pham, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. Right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. The former Atlanta police officer who fatally shot a 27-year-old black man last week has been charged with murder. Rayshard Brooks was killed during a confrontation outside a Wendy's restaurant. Prosecutors say Garrett Rolfe kicked Brooks after shooting him and failed to give first aid. But defense attorneys say he did give Brooks medical attention. France's Emmanuel Macron is visiting the UK in his first foreign trip during the coronavirus outbreak. It marks the 80th anniversary of a speech the French general Charles de Gaulle gave from London in World War II, calling on his country to resist Nazi occupation. The French president will hold socially distant talks with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And the British Prime Minister also leading tributes to the entertainer and singer Dame Vera Lynn, who's died at the age of 103. With her best-known song, We'll Meet Again, she was known during World War II as the Force's sweetheart. Boris Johnson said her voice will live on to lift the hearts of generations to come. back to First Move live from New York, where U.S. stocks are on track for a lower open this morning. The volatile aviation sector in particular weighing today. You can see that down some 1% at this stage for Dow Futures. Boeing is set to fall around 3%, which is one of the big weights on the broader index here. Investors still concerned, I think, about the number of people filing for U.S. jobless benefits. A further 1.5 million Americans just in the last week. That brings the total number of claims to more than 45 million people since mid-March. Now, the number of Americans still collecting benefits fell slightly last week, but that number remains stuck stubbornly above the 20 million mark. Claims have been trending lower, admittedly, for the past 11 weeks, but are still about as twice as high as when previous records were set back in the early 1980s. The U.S. jobs situation would have been even worse without PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program. It was created by U.S. Congress in March in its $2 trillion coronavirus relief package. It's been credited with saving jobs during the depths of the lockdown. It allowed businesses to borrow money with the assistance of a Treasury guarantee. Well, now the Consumer Bankers Association, which represents the U.S. retail lending industry, is calling for loans below $150,000 to be automatically forgiven. Richard Hunt is the president and CEO of the CBA, and he joins us now. Richard, fantastic to have you on the show. You know, I look at these numbers that we get every day, and it's astonishing to me that the belief is that these numbers would have been far worse without this lending scheme to small and medium-sized businesses. But that's the truth here. Yes, it is. We think we've saved about 30 million jobs in this country. Over 5,000 lenders got together, worked overnight to work with the SBA and the United States Department of Treasury to process over $500 billion in loans. Now, keep in mind, on a regular year, 
through the 7A program, you would only process about $20 billion in loans. So we're going from 20 billion to 500 billion, basically two decades worth of loans just done in about eight weeks time. So we're very proud of the effort. We work with the small businesses to save and retain jobs, create jobs in some cases. Still got a long way to go with this coronavirus still hanging around. I'm very, very impressed with the work that the banks did to help small businesses during their time of need. It happened incredibly quickly and there was criticism over the contours of this program, how these small businesses managed to get if it was tied to them retaining workers, which is the point you're making about how many jobs you think have been saved. Why now do you think it's so important to see loans that were extended to these small businesses below $150,000 to simply be forgiven? Yeah, so think about the size of a person who received a $150,000 loan. They certainly do not have an accountant or a chief financial officer uh, employed there. It's time for them to open their businesses and retain people. The average loan will cost anywhere from $2,000 to $5,000. The average, the average uh, application fee would cost about two to $5,000, some 20 more hours it would take out of running a business just to perform the application process that is now being asked by the federal government. So yes, us, the retailers, the realtors, the National Association of Federal Credit Unions, Bank Policy Institute are all banding together to ask Congress to give all those loans under $150,000 to be automatically forgiven. Enough of the paperwork enough of spending time with the CPA uh, of the world and more time to go work with their customer. And just to give our viewers a sense, this is around 85% of the loans that were given. It's around a quarter of the notional in terms of the billions of dollars that were lent. What are you hearing very quickly from Congress, from the Treasury over the probability or the possibility of them agreeing to this? So just yesterday, we were very encouraged in the congressional testimony, how many members of Congress raised their hand and said, yes, it's time, whether it's 150,000 or 350,000 or as low as $100,000 to automatically forgive these loans. We expect very soon to have bipartisan legislation introduced in the United States Senate to do just that. Let people who have borrowed $150,000 or less to have those automatically forgiven. Maybe there is a one-page attestment at the end of the day, but the less paperwork, the better for so small businesses can get back to work and not worry about retribution from the federal government. We're in a crisis. This is not everyday uh, application. This is application in the time of a crisis. So it's time to help the small businesses get back to work without retribution from the federal government. Richard, I want to ask a question about accountability for the banks here and how the lending took place. I know it happened under speed. It was about getting the money out there as fast as possible. So there was a push just to get it to the clients that you had. I understand all that. But do you think that minority businesses in particular that didn't have those established banking relationships were harmed in this process because they simply didn't get access to the money soon enough, if at all? Yeah, so we're hoping that's not the case. We're working with several entities to make sure that every single person in this country who runs a small business has access. 
We still have $100 billion left in this account, which we believe would fund over 1 million businesses. So regardless of the type of small business you have, if you need assistance, please go to the SBA Gov website, look at the 5,200 lenders that are still making these loans, and please get to them ASAP. We don't want anybody to be left behind during this crisis. It's such an important message. Will the banks make money? Will they break even or will they lose money on this? And, and do you see this as perhaps an opportunity for some of these banks to do their part, perhaps say sorry for, for what happened back in the financial crisis? Is it being viewed that Look, way? This is, sure, great point. The banks believe this is their a patriotic duty to help small businesses out in their time of need, period. Banks worked around the clock 24-7, especially those first three weeks to get their operations up and running. I'm very, very proud of the role the banks played in this Herculean effort to get this program on board. This program normally would have taken over a year to implement. We got it implemented within about two weeks when it was all said and done. Many of our banks have already said for any dollar they made, they will donate it to their foundation or to charitable organizations. I don't think at the end of the day, banks will make money and that's okay. It's our patriotic duty to step up in the small business time of need. Not only are they our customers, they are God-fearing Americans who get up every single day trying to provide a good or service in very, very thin margins. We hope that 100% of, of all the loans will be eventually forgiven because that means we've created or saved 30 million jobs. Yeah, it's about saving jobs and uh, fighting for businesses and the economy. Richard Hunt, thank you so much for that. Uh, Richard Hunt there, thank the you. Consumers I'm Bankers Association. Thank you. The Market Open is next. Welcome back to First Move, where U.S. stocks are open for trading this Thursday on another day where the jobs market remains well and truly front and centre. A further one and a half million Americans filing for first-time jobless benefits. You can see what we're seeing for the market open this morning. The Dow lower by some seven-tenths of one percent, a continuation of some of the weakness that we saw for the Dow and the S&P yesterday. We were looking slightly weaker before the open, of course, and then we got those jobless numbers. It's the continuing claims, I think, that are the real worry here, remaining above the $20 million mark. If we're seeing jobs coming back, that should be coming down quicker, I think, than we're seeing it. Stocks falling despite renewed commitments from central bankers to stimulate economies. China's central bank governor is pledging to keep the liquidity support flowing. Then we've got the Bank of England boosting its bond buying program by an additional $120 billion plus. The central banks of Indonesia and Brazil also announced rate cuts this week and fresh Indian stimulus also expected soon. Now, there was one piece of good economic news out today and I want to point it out. A gauge of factory activity in the Philadelphia region jumped back into positive territory this month for the first time since January. It's a closely watched survey. So we'll continue to point out these uh, bright spots among the data too. Now, as retailers reopen their doors, telling staff and customers that it's safe to come back and to shop was never going to be simple. There's been a dramatic rethink inside stores which specialize in products that you try before you buy. 
Ulta Beauty claims the mantle of being America's biggest beauty retailer. It has reopened 90% of its stores based on an abundance of caution with masks, perspex and social distancing everywhere. Mary Dillon is the CEO of Ulta Beauty and she joins us now from one of her in-store salons in Chicago. Mary's also the head of the Retail Industries Leaders Association. Mary, great to have you on the show and also in stores so that we can get a look about, look at, see what's going on there. Just talk to me about what impact you've seen in terms of sales and changes that you've implemented as a result of the last few months. Thank you, Julia. So great to be here. Yeah, so at Ulta Beauty, you know, it's been a journey for all of us in retail. I'm thrilled to say that we've got 90% of our stores open across the country today, at least with curbside pickup. I call that Ulta Beauty to go. And we have about two-thirds of our stores or over 800 that are open fully, including salons. And so you can imagine we spent a tremendous amount of time making sure that what we had ready for our guests was going to be a safe and comfortable experience. And so that involves everything from, you know, uh, making sure that our associates do wellness checks before every shift, social distancing, certainly hand sanitizer throughout, uh, face masks, which our, our associates are wearing. We encourage our guests to do that as well. And our testers are only for display right now. So we've really tried to bring the fun back, but also do it as safely as possible for our guests. You know, it's a huge challenge. Throughout that period, what proportion of the sales that you lost because your stores and salons were shut did you actually manage to transfer online? Because I, I think of myself, I would buy something online that I've already used, but for beauty products, you want to test them. You want to actually engage with the products in store. That's kind of an ongoing challenge for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. But on, on the other hand, it's been also a great opportunity, right? Because we became an online-only business there for several weeks when we made the decision to close our stores for the safety of our guests and our associates. So our e-commerce business, Ulta.com, demand really, really shot up quickly. And then when we opened up the curbside pickup, same thing. We found guests really wanting to come back and engage. And as we're opening stores, we see a lot of folks coming into the physical store as well. So we love it when guests engage across all channels. And you know, you're right, trial and discovery is a huge part of the beauty business. And so we know that's gonna to continue to be the case and we're ready to innovate to make that happen for folks as well. What kind of growth in online did you see? We were up over 100% wow. in the first quarter of this year. So, and, and we know that a lot of that adoption of new digital uh, behaviors for everybody is going to continue to be the case. You know, one cool thing is that we have something called Glam Lab on the Ulta Beauty app. And I'm so thrilled we've been investing in this capability. You can try on virtually thousands and thousands of shades of products and um, get a sense of what a lip color or an eye color, even lashes or a new hair color would look like on you. And we saw a 5X increase in the amount of people that are engaging in Glam Lab during that time as well. So when people come to our stores, our associates will show you how to download the app and how to use Glam Lab. You can do it in the store or at home. Sounds good. Talk to me about workers. How many of the workers that you had before have you brought back and how many have you perhaps had to make a decision to, to furlough or to let go? Yes. Well, stepping back, you know, you mentioned Rila. So Rila is a, is, is a group of leading retailers across the U.S. and I'm the chair of that this year. 42 million people are employed in retail in the U.S. And so it's really critical for their livelihoods as well as for the economy that we bring retail back and that it opens up again, right? And America's coming back to shop. I mean, you, you probably saw, but the numbers that came up for May uh, sales in retail were up 17% 
versus April. Now, still down a bit versus year ago, but it's moving in the right direction. At Ulta Beauty, we had to make the tough decision to furlough a lot of our store associates, but guess what? They're coming back. We're bringing folks back as we're starting to reopen. And I can tell you that Ulta Beauty associates are thrilled to come back to work and to serve our guests. I mean, you've sustained strong growth for the last 10 years. And I know the analysts that look at what you're doing and they're very optimistic about how you progress even from here. Do you think you can bring all those workers back just based on what you see for the retail yeah. industry in general? Yeah, I guess we'll see, you know, as we as we go through the summer, we expect to have all of our stores open up by the end of July. So I'd say majority of the case, that'll be true, that people are going to be coming back. Um, but, you know, as I said, retail together is working to do this in the safest possible way and also to bring people back as well as to help the economy by stimulating retail demand. So we'll see as it it continues to go. I love the innovation that's happening in the industry and finding new ways to meet guest needs. You know, it's interesting. I want your uh, retail, the broader sector hat on right now to answer this question. We're seeing a social shift, a, a far greater focus on minorities, whether it's in terms of workers and the conditions that they have and the opportunities that they have, but also just in terms of products and approach from brands and businesses on how they how they represent themselves and their values. What's the most important thing, do you think, for the retail industry now and the message that they need to be sending? Well, I would say it's all about listening and learning and um, in evolving on the journey. I can speak to, I mean, retail, I know retail CEOs across the country who are dedicated uh, to making sure that their associates and their guests feel included and see themselves. If I think about Ulta Beauty, our mission is making sure that everybody sees the possibilities of beauty for themselves at Ulta. And so, you know, we have been on that mission for a long period of time. In fact, so what we're doing is trying to play a role here and have a voice amplifying black voices on our social channels, black beauty. Uh, We have a a great number of black um, owned brands that we've launched in the last few years, like Uma, like Beauty Bakery, like uh, Pattern by Tracy Ellis Ross. And we'll continue to add to that roster. I think probably also the most important thing is to listen to your own associates, really understand their journey. Now, I feel proud about the diversity and inclusion values and how we brought those to life at Alta. But we all have work to do. And so I'm very committed to listening and learning. That's, and I know that's true of, of everybody I know in retail. Yes, listen, give people a voice. Mary Dillon, great to chat to you. Uh, come back and talk to us soon, Thank please. You I want to hear your progress. The CEO of Ulta Beauty there. All right, up next, as India grapples with a brutal border conflict, Fitch, the rating agency, downgrading the country's outlook over the COVID-19 fallout. We've got analysis next. First move. In India, funerals are being held for some of the 20 soldiers India says were killed in a border clash with China. The conflict comes as India faces ongoing challenges from COVID-19. Rating agencies Fitch cut the country's outlook to negative, citing the lockdown's impact on economic growth. Joining us now, Rishi Sharma is the author of the book Rules of Successful Nations. He's also chief global strategist at Morgan Stanley Investment Management and joins us from New Delhi. Rishi, always great to have you on the show. It's fascinating to see that India followed through with many of the lockdown measures that we've seen other nations, particularly in the West, enact, but with far greater firepower to try and offset some of the economic consequences as a result. How bad is the fallout from COVID-19 first? 
Well, as you know, Julia, there's a pretty straight relationship in terms of the severity of the lockdowns and the severity of the economic contraction. So because India decided to enact what was possibly the most draconian lockdown in the world, at least in the month of April, um, economic activity has taken a huge hit here. By most estimates now, this is likely to be the worst economic contraction that India has suffered in its post-independence history. So that's what we're looking at in terms of the outlook for the next uh, uh, few months. The more disturbing part has been that despite having such a draconian lockdown, the uh, success in controlling the virus so far has been quite mixed. That the fatality rates are pretty low, but the case growth is still exploding. So in a way, this has really not turned out to be uh, an ideal scenario for India because you were, like ended up having these two uh, outcomes where a very draconian lockdown was enacted and now you're being forced uh, to open the economy up because the government's broke uh, or nearly broke. And that's why these rating agencies are obviously issuing uh, these kind of warnings now. What are we looking at in terms of workers displaced? You've pointed out 140 million migrant workers, but the unemployment rate isn't even given by India. It's very complicated to calculate. What's your estimate here? As you said, that you know, it's very hard to have estimates in India. The, uh, it's these think tanks which try and put out some estimates. And the number that I quoted in the New York Times piece that you're referring to, which I wrote, uh, was in the region of somewhere around 25% or so as far as the uh, unemployment rate's concerned. So it's that kind of uh, situation. But you know, this is the issue with data or analyzing economies like India, that using developed country concepts like unemployment rates or um, how will the lockdown uh, affect these economies is so hard to do because data and other metrics are so much harder to come by in these countries. You also made two astonishing comparisons as well. India having one twentieth of the average income of the United States. To your point about the, the difficulty of adding further support, support to the tune of 2% of gross domestic product versus the United States that's 12% plus. It depends how you choose to calculate that. What's this going to mean? As I said, that uh, India is likely to face its worst economic contraction in uh, its post-independence history that goes back to 1947. Uh, so that's what it's going to mean. Now, of course, the positive aspect here is that the economy is opening up. If you look at the mobility data, things are limping back to normal. So at least that rethink has happened at the government level, that this lockdown was very much a temporary strategy and India just has to get back to work because it can't afford an, uh, any extended lockdown strategy. So at the margin, things are uh, on the economic front are improving, but as long as the case growth remains high in places like Delhi and Mumbai, uh, consumer behavior will still be very much affected by it. Uh, but I want to focus here at least at the margin on the positive that economic activity is returning, uh, if not to normal, at least coming back from the very draconian lockdown hit that it took in April and May. Yeah, we should focus on the positives, too, and look for those green shoots. Um, Brishia, I should have calibrated my question there in terms of the social aspect, because if I look around the world and you're so great at connecting the dots on these things, there is anger 
being directed towards China for their initial handling of this. Obviously, I introduced you by mentioning the tensions that we'd seen on the border between India and China, too. How do you see that playing out, particularly for um, for Prime Minister Modi, who came to power last year on this sort of stance of national security? This is a sort of pivotal moment, whether it's the economy or whether it's politics here, surely. Yeah, I think that as far as the prime minister is concerned, the biggest advantage he has in India today is that there isn't much of an opposition. So <laughs> therefore, he has an enormous amount of political capital and he's able to get away with a lot. Uh, and I'd say that even in these kind of uh, situations, if you know what happens, Julia, is that the nation tends to rally behind its leader. Uh, and this is true across the world. I think that um, putting back my global hat here, which is the fact that the approval ratings of many leaders around the world have gone up significantly over the past couple of months as they have uh, suffered through this crisis. The issue is that now, once that sort of uh, high comes from rallying behind your leader, in the end, people care about basic things like jobs and inflation. Um, so the focus may turn to that. But it, like in India's case, as I said, that people seem to be rallying behind the prime minister or they have done so for the last two or three months. Uh, but if the economy does not come back to normal uh, and these migrant labors, we just get to hear a lot of anecdotal evidence, at least, that there's a lot of anger at the way that they've been displaced. Um, that will obviously be a political challenge for the prime minister. But currently, uh, he remains unchallenged. And I think that as far as this crisis with China is concerned, very hard to know what it means for him politically. But I think that we are all hoping here that this de-escalates because the stakes are so high uh, for both these countries to let this really spin out of control. Yes, find a peaceful path here. Rusha, this is why it's always great to have you on the show. Always a different perspective. Rusha Sharma, Chief Global Strategist at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Always great to chat to you. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But coming up, the Premier League is back but with a delayed kickoff in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. The English Premier League, the world's richest football league, kicked off on Wednesday after a three-month halt and players made a very visible gesture of solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. Alex Thomas is live in Manchester with all the details. Alex, a few technical issues, a disallowed goal that was clearly a goal, I believe, the kneeling and show of support. It had everything, bar the fans. How did it go down? It did. Hello again, Julia. Yes, on your show yesterday, we talked about having to wait more than three months for the return of England's globally popular Premier League. We've now seen action back here again, including in the stadium behind me, the Etihad Stadium, where Manchester City beat Arsenal 3-0. But what was the standout moment of the whole evening was this astonishing display of solidarity after both of Wednesday's Premier League games kicked off. So the match was actually underway. The first thing that every single player from both teams in both games did, and the referee and the coaches, was take a knee. All the players have agreed for the first dozen of games to wear Black Lives Matter on the back of their shirts instead of their names. And here you saw the game suspended with the players taking a knee. And that certainly was something that was a talking point after the game. And this is what the city boss Pep Guardiola had to say. The white people is apologize, say sorry. 
the way we treat the black people in the last 400 years or four centuries. So I feel ashamed what we have done for this marvelous uh, black people around the world. It's not a problem about the USA and United States of America would have an, for Mr. Floyd, I think it's a problem of racism is in everywhere. It was also fitting to see Raheem Sterling, the England star, and a vocal critic of racism in football score, the opening goal for City in their victory here over Arsenal. Something for his fans to cheer about, although there were none doing that in the stadium, of course, because spectators are still locked out because of the coronavirus fears. Nonetheless, no spectators didn't mean no excitement because in Wednesday's earlier game, after the BLM gestures, we saw a nil-nil draw between Aston Villa and Sheffield United. But we also saw this astonishing technical glitch where the ball crossed the line, but the goal line technology system run by Hawkeye didn't register it. Hawkeye later releasing a statement, apologising, saying it was an error and that none of their cameras in the stadium were able to see clearly that the ball had crossed the line and that hadn't happened before in more than 9,000 games previously. So, for the sports fans, plenty of excitement and interest, Julia, but it does now mean City's win that Liverpool will have to wait longer to clinch that title they've been waiting for for 30 years. Oh, Hawkeye needs some glasses and I have to wait for Liverpool's championship win. How exciting. I was going to show our viewers the league table just to illustrate the lead that we have right now, but I don't want to crow too loudly, Alex. Oh, look, we've done it anyway. Yay. Go Liverpool. Plenty of time. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Alex Thomas, thank you so much for that. All right, that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Stay safe and I'll see you tomorrow, Friday. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.